0: Proverbs chapter 18. Now, if you're trying to find the book of Proverbs and you don't know where it is, uh, just open your Bible to the middle, and you're in the Psalms, and it's the very next book beyond the Psalms, the book of Proverbs. And today's Bible verse is the fifth verse of chapter 18. I do want to say this to you. Um, On the front of your bulletin is a great passage of Scripture that David wrote when he was crying out to the Lord. When he was overwhelmed, when he said, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, you're a shelter, you're a strong tower, notice what he says in that psalm, thou hast given me the heritage of those that fear thy name. Thou hast given me the heritage of those that fear thy name. Now, I want you to remember that verse, because that's a heart, that's the heart of the application To this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you'd open it to our hearts. Lord, may it change the way we think. May it encourage us and strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 5. If you're reading from the New King James, it's almost identical. In fact, almost all the translations are very, very close. It is not good to show partiality to the wicked. Or to overthrow the righteous in judgment. Now let me read it one more time. It is not good to show partiality to the wicked. Or to overthrow the righteous in judgment. Now it's a standalone proverb for the most part. But no proverb, nothing in God's word stands alone. Because it is always to be understood in relationship to what the rest of the scripture teaches. And so we're going to pull just a couple of verses of Scripture in here so that you can see that the, uh, this verse of Scripture can be even tweaked a little bit more. For instance, if you're in chapter 18, verse 5, go back to chapter 17, verse 15. And in chapter 17, 15, we have another word that we can add to the word, it is not good to show partiality to the wicked. Just as it is not good to show partiality to the wicked, it is not good to justify the wicked. Look at verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Do you see that? you see that? So in addition to the word partiality, you have the word justifying the wicked. In addition to overthrowing the righteous, you have condemning the righteous. And then I'd like you to look at verse 26 of the very same chapter. The neat thing about this is we didn't have to go very far to bring in these verses of Scripture. We have one word here in verse 26. Also, to punish the righteous is not good. So we have two words. We have showing partiality to the wicked and justifying the wicked in what they do. And we have, as far as the righteous are concerned, we have overthrowing the righteous, condemning the righteous, and punishing the righteous. Well, in God's providence, I think this uh, verse fell out today for us. As I always look at the passage of Scripture when I preach, I always look at the passage of Scriptures in the daily Bible reading for today. And this is a great passage of Scripture. Two groups of people are being contrasted here. You have the wicked being contrasted against uh, 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 and the righteous. There's a contrast there. And the important thing that you and I need to keep in mind that what God is addressing here is the contrast that occurs when there is a conflict between the wicked and the righteous. I mean, that's obvious. There's an obvious connection between the first part of the verse and the second part of the verse. You're not going to take the first part of the verse and put it over here and say, oh, that stands all by itself and not deal with the second. In fact, older translations, and I think the King James Version probably has a comma between those two concepts so that we understand that they go hand in hand. But to use a modern term, which is actually built on this principle, this is all about injustice. This is all about not being fair. This is all about having a twisted sense of morality if you're going to justify the wicked and you're going to overthrow the righteous. That's what it's all about. And the context of this passage of Scripture, I want you to notice the context of this passage of Scripture, it is injustice that is being carried on in the context of judgment in verse 5. Do you see it? So you have the wicked, you have the righteous, you have the injustice on both sides, and you have it in the context of judgment. Now, he doesn't tell us what that judgment is all about. But the important thing that you and I need to keep in mind is that judgment is a pretty broad term, right? It can refer to the judgment seat of Christ. It can refer to our formal courts of judgment in our court system here in the United States. And it can even include the personal judgments we make in our own minds and in our hearts when we think of either the righteous or the wicked. Now, I want to illustrate this with something that you've heard me share from the pulpit. And I want you to think about this because I think this is perhaps a perfect illustration of what we're talking about here when we put the verse together. Remember, many years ago, and this actually happened about 40 years ago, I was in seminary at the time. And uh, there was, uh, there was a, a child who was asked in the, in the school that he was attending, child was asked to read a book that was filled with all kinds of foul language. That's more commonplace than it is, was back then, although that was the, books like that were on the reading list when I was in school. And he came home and he said to his mother and dad, he said, you know what? I, I've been browsing through this book and I, it doesn't look like you, you want me to read this book. It's got a lot of, uh, lot of crude language in it. And the mother and the dad looked the book over very carefully and said, this is really bad. This is really bad. We need to have a uh, meeting with your teacher. And so they felt that in order to have a productive meeting with the teacher they would take along someone that they knew who who knew the lord who was a christian from another school who would kind of help be a uh, an advocate for them and so they took this person into the meeting with the teacher and this person kind of uh, headed that meeting and said well you know you have asked uh, you have asked this child to read this book and this book is just not it doesn't meet with the Christian principles of this family, and so we want you to um, not require this student to read the book and not hold it against the student when it comes time to grade. And the teacher in this particular case got really, really upset and said, I don't, I don't like this coming in here and trying to ban books And this educator, this other educator, very, very, very wisely said, well, isn't that interesting that you say that because several years ago we banned this book from the public school system. And the teacher came back and said, I made that assignment and I feel like you're trying to, you're trying to legislate morality. And he came right back and he said, yes, but we can't sit here while you legislate your immorality. That's pretty good. You see see why I'm using that as an example in verse 5. It is not good to show partiality to the wicked or to overthrow the righteous in judgment with a twisted sense of morality. You see, and why? Say, and you say, "Boy, how can you get away with saying a twisted sense of morality?" Well, you're going to see in just a moment here, because we're going to wrap this up with uh, with an application. I think that's going to help all of us. You see, because God says it's not good to do that, and when God says it's not good to do that, you might want to take a, a a nice concordance, or or you know, in, in your in your smartphone, you might want to you might want to just type in uh, "It's not good" and see how many times the Bible says. About things that are not good. And why they're not good. Why they're not good is because there's a consequence. It's not an idle threat. God's not making idle threats. Or idle comments when he says it's not good. Because everything has a consequence to it. And if we live in a society. Where we show partiality to the wicked. Where we rule in their favor. Where we um, justify their actions and we live in a society where we overthrow the righteous, we punish the righteous, or um, we um, condemn the righteous, then it has great consequence for our society in which we live. But even greater than that is, it has a great consequence for God's plan and purpose to redeem His people in the world um, you talk about backsliding, nations that backslide into this kind of thing, and I'm not just trying to make it a national thing, it's an individual thing. Just take, a, you know, Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, when he was talking about personal judgments, personal thoughts that we make to other people, he says, you know, be careful when you make personal judgments and you judge other people. Be careful, because I may use that, you, you, the The measure that you use to judge other people will be used against you. So be careful. But anyway, what can we do about it? I mean, here we have this proverb, and I'm trying to suggest to you that a proverb never stands alone, even though it is separated from the other two, because we can read it by itself and apply it by itself. But it has a foundation, a very strong foundation in the rest of the Bible. And uh, let me just throw out one other illustration for you before we look at that, so that you can kind of think in a different area. Back in back in the early part of the seventies, as you know, we the the United States said that abortion's okay, justifying ungodliness, right? And in the process, over the years, <clears throat> has made it possible for us to have has, has said. Not only is it okay, but we want the American people to pay for it, right? You see what I'm saying? Do you see, do you see how this is, a, is another good illustration of how we justify wickedness and we condemn righteousness, or we punish righteousness? And so <clears throat> I want you to keep that kind of an illustration in your mind when we ask the question, what can we do? Because here's the big problem that we face right off the bat. When we talk about the wicked and we talk about the righteous, the lines between those two groups is being skewed. They're not as clear as they used to be as far as society. I can't tell you how many times that I read comments from people who want to share with me that a good Christian person is doing this. And I look at it and I say, but I don't understand that. Because the Bible doesn't condone it at all. I can't tell you how many times I read that. And, and they're unaware of it. They say, well, isn't that what Christianity is all about? And, uh, and, and, and so today we live... Uh, We live in a culture that is calling evil good and good evil. Because the human race is struggling to live apart from God. I was going to say we're on our own. You know, we do what's right in our own eyes. We do what's right in our own thinking. That's another thing that you might want to put down and and find out how many times in the Bible God talks about what we want to do on our own eyes, in our own strength. But, you know, even though we think we're doing it in our own eyes and our own strength, society is getting a lot of help from Satan. I'll just throw that out there. Paul, every once in a while, would throw that kind of a statement out whenever he was writing. It's amazing, when, when you come across those statements in his books, it's amazing how it makes you stop, look, and listen. But what can we do about it? Well, in the concluding remarks that I want to make, I want to refer to uh, several passages of Scripture, not a lot of commentary on them. I'm just going to read uh, basically some of these. Go clear back to Exodus chapter 23, verses 1 through 8. Now, you don't have to look at all of these. You don't have to look at all of these. But if you go to Exodus chapter 23, verses 1 and following, and I'm just going to basically read this to you and make a note or two. And the other ones are much shorter. There are only a couple of verses. It won't take us long to get through this. So don't worry. Don't worry. I don't want you to get distracted on the time. We're trying very, very hard to keep the services shorter than we normally do them. This is right after the Ten Commandments were given in chapter 20. <clears throat> and, and, and Moses says this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Two, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil. Three, nor shall you testify in a dispute as to, as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. Four, five, you shall, not, you shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. And by the way, later on, he says, you shouldn't show partiality to a poor man or a rich man. And then down to verse 6 and 7, he says, You shall not pervert the judgment of the poor in his dispute, and you shall keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous. The implication, by the way, is that the, the, the wicked person is guilty, and the righteous person is innocent. So none of this makes any sense that you're going to condemn innocence and he's not talking about innocence as far as any sin is concerned personally in our lives and in our hearts. None of us are innocent in that regard. But I want you to see two things, things—real, two, two quick things in this passage of Scripture. Number one, sandwiched between all of those don't do these things, don't pervert justice, don't justify wrongdoing. In between verses 1, 2, and 3, and 6 and 7 is verses 4 are verses 4 and 5, and I think they're in there because they help us to not be um, showing partiality, not being guilty of what the psalmist is talking about and the, what the proverb is talking about in chapter 18, verse 5. If you meet your enemy you know, he talks about the wicked, he talks about a crowd, he talks about many, he talks about a poor man, the implication being that these people end up being your neighbors, but they may end up being your enemy as well. And if you meet your enemies, ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, lying under its burden, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. I'm amazed at what the Bible says to, to us to help us temper our own thinking because we can be come skewed as well in our thinking. And here is one way that God tells us that we can handle the problem of injustice. You know, Jesus said to us many things about our enemies. Paul says that we're to keep coals of fire on their head when we have an opportunity to do that, and it doesn't, that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. The Bible says here that if his ox or his donkey goes astray, help him out. I don't need to make any more commentary about that. But there is a motivation here. And I want you to see this because it's part of the application. In verse 7, the Bible says, keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous for. And every time you see the little word for, you know that you're now getting a reason for doing what you're doing. And God always gives us plenty of reasons for doing what we do. For I will not justify the wicked. You talk about personal responsibility. If you and I fall into the trap of justifying the wicked, of saying, oh, that's okay, you can do that. There's nothing wrong with that. God loves you and he cares about you and and it's okay for you to do that. If we fall in the trap of doing that, you you and I need to imagine what's going to happen on Judgment Day when God is passing sentence on people that society has justified. You think of the responsibility that we have. It's pretty great, isn't it? I can see the Lord looking at a lot of people and saying, who told you that? Well, my, my neighbor said it was okay, and society said it's okay, and it was the law, and, it, and everything was okay, and God will say, well, wait a minute. It's not okay, no matter who told you that, no, no, matter, no matter who led you to believe that. Now, I want you to go over to Deuteronomy chapter 1 verses, just two verses here, and the commentary will be very simple. He's talking about national leaders in the first part of Deuteronomy chapter 1. This is Moses speaking. The children of Israel have been in the wilderness for 40 years. They're now camped ready to go into the land of Canaan, and and, and, and Moses is talking about the experience, and he says, you know, the time came when I couldn't bear the burden of leadership, and I gave you a lot of other leaders. You chose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men, And then I want you to jump down to verse 16. Then he says, he says, I want to talk about your judges. I want to talk about your, your uh, judicial system. When I commanded your judges, judges at that time, saying, hear the, hear the cause between your brother and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him, you shall not what? And you can, you can imagine. Show partiality and judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not, what? Be afraid of man's presence. And what is the reason? He gives plenty of reasons, right? And the reason is, for the judgment is God's, not yours. We have to have a strong sense that we are accountable to God. We have to have a strong sense that things are just not our opinion, We have to have a strong sense that we have a responsibility to mimic what God says in His Word. You know, and if you have to say, I'm sorry, I wish I could tell you differently, but God says that I cannot justify this action. I cannot be partial to you based on what the Scriptures teach. And the application here would be, Don't be afraid to tell the truth. Go over to Deuteronomy chapter 16. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, and I'd love to refer to more than one passage of Scripture so that you understand that I'm not just pulling some small bit of information out of the Bible that's not confirmed anywhere else. It's confirmed everywhere. You can see how this all works in with uh, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 5. In chapter 16, verses 18 through 20, just, uh, just uh, three verses here, isn't it? You shall appoint judges. Oh, by the way, uh, the application is pretty clear as far as our judicial system is in this nation, right? I don't need to say anything more about that, do I? You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with what? Everybody together. Just Judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. (laughs) It's so practical. It's so down to earth. It's so what we're dealing with today. And I hate to even, uh, there's, there's words that pop into your mind when we talk about this, don't we? Bribes. I mean, we have a culture in our nation where it is expected for you to pay off people in order to get your, your particular ideas through Congress, right? Well, he says, you are supposed to not do that. Verse 20, you shall follow what is altogether just. And what is the reason? What is the reason? So that you avoid the indictment that that is not good. That is not good. You want to avoid that that indictment? Then you're going to recognize that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving to you if you are faithful not to do that. I have three quick examples for you, and then we're going to be closing it up. Three quick examples for you. David. In 2 Samuel, chapter 23, verses 1 through 4, he understood this very, very well. And in 2 Samuel, at the end of his life, and he is kind of reviewing things, and he's going back in verse 20, uh, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 of Second Samuel 23. I'm just going to read this to you and give you just, a, just a, a bit of commentary. Thus says David, the son of Jesse... Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He and everybody together, you can read this, look at this, everybody together, he who rules over men must be just. Ruling in what? The fear of God. There's your application. It's right on the front of the bulletin, right? You have given me the heritage of those who fear thy name. Boy, there's no fear of God. I, I had a, it would have made this a lot longer, but I started writing down passages of Scripture where uh, the fool has no fear. Of, there's no fear of God in their eyes, and they, they do these things and all this stuff, We need to get back to understanding what it means to fear God. But I love the application in verse 4. Don't you want to be this? Don't you want this to be a testimony of your life? In verse 4 he says, And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises. We just get those cameras out, and when the, when the sunrise comes up, and we know it's going to be a beautiful thing, and we, don't, we rush in to get the camera and come back out, and we start snapping pictures and say, man, that is a beautiful, beautiful sunrise. A morning without clouds like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. That's what we want to be. That's what God wants us to be. Put that in your wonderful journal, your journal of wonderful things, okay? We're building a journal on Wednesday night. We had a couple weeks to do this, but we're building a journal of wonderful things. Put that in your journal of wonderful things, and think about it, all right? Now, Ahab is another good example, and I don't need to read this to you. You know Nahab. You know that Ahab was the king of Israel. His wife was Jezebel. You know that he wanted this vineyard. Naboth had it. It was right next to his palace, and he wanted it. He went to Naboth, and he tried his best to get Naboth to give him the vineyard. You don't have to go looking at it. You know the story. He went into the house. Naboth kept saying, no, 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 I can't give my inheritance away. Uh, God wouldn't want me to do that. I don't want to do it. Naboth goes into the house and he starts to pout and he's displeased and he won't eat and he's depressed. And his wife comes to him and says, I'll come, you're depressed. Well, Naboth, the, Naboth won't give me his land. And Jezebel says, I'll get it for you. I'll get it for you. She wrote letters in Ahab's name, forged his signature, sealed them with his seal, sent the letters to the elder and says, hey, let's get a public gathering here. Let's get Naboth out there and put him up there. And we're going to set this guy up royally. We're going to put him up there as if he is uh, in high honor among the people. I don't know. We're going to give him maybe the citizen of the year award. We're going to give him the best garden or the vineyard in all of the land. I don't know. Doesn't say what they were going to do. But they set him up. And and, and in the letter, she said, Proclaim a fast, seat Naboth with high honor among the people, and seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him. And sure enough, the day came, the two scoundrels were there. They came and sat before him. They're on the platform with him, I suppose. And the scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. Justifying... The wicked, punishing, or overthrowing, condemning the righteous. Well, you know what happened to him. And the third illustration is Second Chronicles chapter 19. 2 Chronicles chapter 19. Jehoshaphat, he kind of he got together with a king of Israel. Talk about messing the lines of right and wrong. He got together with the king of Israel, and he was in league with the king of Israel. And it didn't go very badly. It didn't go very well for them. In fact, the king of Israel was killed over it. And he went home. And the Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 19 that Jehu, Jehu came to him, and he said to him in verse 2 of 2 Chronicles 19, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Boy, you're blurring the lines between right and wrong. You're justifying the wicked. You're helping the wicked. You're being partial to them. And it really hit his heart. It really hit his heart. And just just, Jehoshaphat decided he was going to change things. So in verse 5, he says, And then he set Judges in the land throughout all of the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, Take heed to what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but what? Here's his motivation. You know, we need to realize that we're not judging for man, but for the Lord who is with you in the judgment. And then he brings back that application in verse 7. He says, now therefore let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Verse 9, act in the fear of the Lord faithfully and with a loyal heart. And then verse 11, behave courageously. But in the context of this, he brings it up again, and he says, listen, we're not here to judge for ourselves what we think we need to do on our own strength, in our own mind, with our own opinions. We're to do what God wants us to do. I want you to know that when you're out there judging, he says that you need to understand that every time someone suggests something where wickedness is going to be justified or you're going to be partial to that, you're going to rule in favor of the wicked, you have a responsibility to stop and say, whoa, 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 whoa. You do understand that you're not just sinning against people. You're sinning against God. Now, in closing, turn to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah 11. Why is this so important? I've asked you to imagine what it's going to be like on Judgment Day if we show partiality, if we rule in favor of the wicked, and in the process we punish the righteous, we condemn the righteous, Imagine what that's going to be like on judgment day. You know, and I, I will tell you this, God, does not, uh, God uh, does not think kindly of those who overthrow the righteous. You know, you may be doing your own thing and you may not have the righteous in mind. But God, you know, read God's word on how he feels about overthrowing the righteous and you're going to see it's not, it's not, it's not good. <laughs> Verse 1 and following, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. This takes me back to David. God is going to put the Messiah on the throne of David one of these days when Jesus comes back. He's talking about the coming of Christ, first coming, of course, second coming is implied in here strongly. Because there's going to come a rod from the stem of Jesse, and the branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. In Jesus' human, you know, Jesus is God-man. So we have the elements of both deity and the elements of humanity in the ministry, in the life of Jesus. And Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father right now. God-man. God-man. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of it. Oh, this is good, isn't it? He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Let's read the rest of it. This is, we can't stop there. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his ways. You and I have the example of Christ. You and I have Christ to embolden us to do the right thing. Now listen, you're going to be reading First and Second Thessalonians this week. And as you read 1 and 2 Thessalonians, my final comment now, as you read 1 and 2 Thessalonians this week, remember it's all about the second coming of Christ. Every chapter refers to the second coming of Christ, and in the first book, which was written three months before the second book, you have Jesus talking about, he's coming back. We're waiting for his coming. He's coming to save us. He came to save the human race. He came to save us from our sin. He came to die on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. Jesus came to do that for us out of God's great love. For what does the Bible say? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that is addressed to everyone who wants to come to Christ. Nobody will be excluded if they want to be saved. Nobody, but time is coming when the offer of the gospel is not going to be there any longer. And when Paul writes his second letter to the Thessalonians three months later to correct their misunderstanding over a couple of issues, he talks about Jesus coming to take vengeance and to consume wickedness. You've got to keep that in mind. God is a God of love. God is a God of righteousness and justice. Amen? Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word today. Lord, I pray, first of all, that it's an encouragement to us. Nothing new under the sun. Societies have fallen into this problem since day one. But, Father, I pray that this will give us what we need to challenge this problem. And that, Father, we will in no way be guilty of justifying the wicked and condemning the righteous. But, for Father, clearly, based on your word and what you teach us, that we will define what righteousness is, and that, Father, we will, with courage, embrace it and defend it. In Jesus, your name, we pray, amen.